0: totally at the world cup
1: welcome everybody do not be touching anything
2: unbelievable unbelievable this
0: Cup, day seven. Uruguay and Russia through, but Morocco horror show as North Africans go Russian home. Victims of the worst finishing since this sentence. Also off, the Saudis, who typically bombed in the middle of another country's celebrations. And the day was rounded off with drama on the telly as Spain got a scare of Team Meli. Thursday, from one, there's more World Cup fun with Group C. Denmark taking on Australia in Samara. Then from four, France against Peru in Ekaterinburg. And in the evening, the big one, Argentina Croatia in Nizhny Novgorod. It's all coming up in Totally Football Show at the World Cup. Yes, hello from World Cup land, listener. We're joined today by Matt Davis. Hello, Matt. Hello, James. Tom Williams is here too. Hello, James. And so is Jack Lang. Good evening. Hello to you all. Interesting day, Wednesday. Interesting. Kind of reached a crescendo at the endo with the, the the big kind of Iran-Spain thing. But before that... Slightly flat. It was almost like the honeymoon was slightly over. The first guests were departing, in this case Morocco and, and Egypt and, and, and Saudi Arabia and heading home to their day jobs. But equally, we did get the first teams through and then we, we got that tremendously exciting match at the end, which kind of made up for it all.
3: Yeah, a bit of a slow burner. We're still on no nil nil draws for the competition, which is obviously hey. great. But it didn't really feel like that today because <clears> certainly the first two 1-0s were about as boring as 1-0s get. But, as you say, redeemed to an extent by uh, Iran-Spain, which was oddly compelling in that Iran set their stall out early, packed 11 men behind the ball and at every available opportunity flopped to the ground without the need for any sort of real provocation. Ordinarily, you'd condemn that. But when the team on the receiving end contains Diego Costa and Sergio Ramos and Jordi Alba, I won't go on.
0: Plus, it was just such a huge mismatch as well. It felt that way in terms of FIFA rankings and the like. Yeah, it was an interesting. Game. We'll come on to that in a second. Of course, also later on in the show will be having a look at the, the the matches on Thursday, why they're going to be great. And we'll be hearing from some of the global Totally family on uh, things to watch out for in, in those. But uh, the scores then on Wednesday, Morocco beaten 1-0 by a pretty lacklustre Portugal, a Ronaldo getting his fourth goal of this cup. Morocco now out, as we mentioned. Uruguay put two teams out, remarkably. Saudi Arabia, who they beat in Rostov, and Egypt, whose exit is also confirmed by that result. And back in Group B, it was Franco's lament, Iran-Spain. Diego Costa winning that one, 1-0. And one thing I should mention, actually, I don't know if you heard Shireen talking about the the passion that all parts of Iranian society feel for the game of football. Uh, last night on Totally. Interested to note that uh, women and families were were allowed entrance to the Azadi Stadium in Tehran to watch this, this match on the big screens there after 37 years of being banned. So that's absolutely terrific. Sadly, events on the field didn't go quite their way, obviously not sadly from Spain's point of view. Was it a fair result in the end, Jack, that 1-0 win?
4: I would say just about, yes, because Spain, especially in the first half, dominated the ball. Iran had clearly a very conservative game plan especially in the first half which was to keep 11 men behind the ball I thought they did it very well actually in the second half when they'd fallen behind they came Mm. out and made a bit of a game of it and I was quite impressed with them really I think by no means will that be a walkover for Portugal in their last game right but I think Spain probably would argue that on balance of play they just about did enough to win even though it was an enormously scrappy goal and you might wonder whether the system especially to play a team like Iran who are always going to sit back there are a couple of decisions made by Hierro that are fairly questionable. Costa, aside from his very fortunate goal, didn't really seem to be the player to work in those tight spaces, didn't really combine too much with his teammates. And the same for Lucas Vasquez, I think, who is a player who exploits space, uses his speed, and there really wasn't any space to exploit here. Mm. So I think he was quite ineffective. And Spain, despite, I think, shading the balance of play, probably... Also a touch lucky, considering the nature of the goal.
0: Lack of reaction from the the novice Spain manager.
5: Yeah, which I guess is forgivable. Um, But, you know, uh, Diego Costa, we were sitting in the office watching the game and we all thought maybe it was more of an as-pass game. But he's the player who's got the winning goal in the end, even though there was a stroke of luck to it. And and nine in nine in in his last nine international starts for Spain is, is pretty impressive. Three shots on
0: target, three goals.
5: Mm, well, yeah. ruthlessly efficient.
0: You make your own luck in in this game. <laughs> are we got shot. I mean, I know he scored, but he didn't.
3: He didn't exactly shoot he a didn't goal, move did his he? His leg toward did the ball, I know it did came he? Off his knee, but I'm have to quibble that one
0: with the the Opta lads. All right, <laughs> Iran had made a, a bit of a go of it. They had a, a cracking chance just before Spain scored, and then afterwards uh, hearts of flutter as they buried the ball in the side netting, and then and then even scored, but then had it called back for
4: offside. Yeah, really dramatic final stages. I think they deserve a great deal of credit for coming on so strongly in the end because for a long stretch of the game, it looked as though they didn't have the tools to really push that Spain back line. But when they showed a little bit more attacking intent, I thought they were very good and Spain actually looked quite ratted at the end. We saw Karim Anza Farad had the ball in the side netting, looked like a goal. I was celebrating it as too much amusement in the office there kind of the Raheem Sterling of this World Cup, if you will, World celebrations. And then, yes, I think the decision for their ruled-out goal was the correct one, I think we can all agree, but a bit of a scare for Spain.
0: And to finish off the game, a little bit of fun for us all, that wonderful forward roll throw-in. Milad Mohamedy take a bow, for it was he who,
3: deep into stoppage time, with his team desperately trying to find the equaliser that would keep their World Cup hopes alive, decides that this is the time to attempt uh, an acrobatic somersault throw-in, misjudges his landing completely, lands about a foot short of the touchline, decides actually he's not going to go through with it, backs up a bit and throws the ball in normally. Video footage is already flashing around the world. Probably cost
0: him, what, a minute or so? Perhaps a minute, maybe 30 seconds
3: or so, but, you know, gave us all a laugh, so he's he's done something. (laughs) Can't put a price on comedy.
4: (laughs) He also has the nickname, I've just done a bit of cursory research, he's nicknamed Mig Mig, which is the, I guess, the foreign language version of Beep Beep, which is Roadrunner. Right. So perhaps understandable that there was some Looney Tunes action in the end there.
6: You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power.
0: Okay, well, that's certainly going to make for an interesting final set of games there in Group B. Elsewhere... Portugal took on Morocco in a match fans are hailing us slightly better than Uruguay, Saudi Arabia. So let's talk about that one now. Poor old Morocco, they're out. And here's Gavin saying, how did Morocco go from the nation that qualified without conceding to the team that left without scoring?
5: Mad. Yeah, lots of um, egg on faces, isn't there? Because uh, they were pretty much everybody's dark horse Morocco and they've become the first team to be eliminated. Though, I mean, Medi Benatia will still be wondering how his team didn't, Get at least one goal in this game. And he could have had a hat-trick. He's got over 50 caps, two goals. He should have at least doubled that in this one match on its own. It was extraordinary the way the chances just fell to him seemingly mm. for Morocco and something I'm well, sure one fell to Bellundo who forced a terrific save mm. from Wolves bound Rui Patricio but all the Bernatti ones seem to be off target and mm. that, that was a fabulous save from Rui Patricio but a lot for, for Herve Renard to, to lament over the course of the tournament really
0: should Morocco have had a penalty in this
4: game when was it Fonte who Fonte, sl- slammed Taib mm. yeah slightly it kind of should, I they? think it was one of those I can see given either way but I was quite frustrated by Morocco I have to say because there's clearly so much potential there yet their decision making in the final third was often quite haywire the mitigating circumstances there are that they lack a really top class finisher to put the ball in the net they've got a lot of creators but those guys in behind who are obviously so talented Belonda and Zayak, their final ball was I thought really poor most of the time and even at the end when they desperately needed a goal, they weren't really carving out opportunities aside from the ones that fell to Banasia. So a bit disappointed. What, what about Portugal who I think a lot of people found disappointing?
0: Are they as for example Tom Condut at Portugal suggests gonna only start playing well when they face a decent side again?
3: I mean quite possibly. That's what happened at the Euro. And mm. you could even argue that they didn't even really play well in the entire tournament and still ended up winning it. So this is a formula that's worked for them in the past. I mean against Morocco Morocco were basically the better team for... The entire game, bar the five seconds it took for João Martinho to put a corner in the box and Ronaldo to score his, his fourth goal of the tournament. Apart from that, Portugal looked really poor. They, they didn't hold on to the ball in midfield. I thought Bernardo Silva had a very poor game. noidan Amrabat recovered from, or perhaps not recovered, from his slightly curious concussion incident in Morocco's first game, gave Rafael Guerrero an absolute chasing on Portugal's left. And it was, it was hard to believe you were watching a team that had won their last major tournament and that had done so well against Spain as well. But as we know in tournaments, it doesn't matter how well you play in in the group stage. And there's even an argument for keeping your powder dry as far as possible. And mm. you know, Portugal are, are on their way to the last
5: sixteen, and maybe then we'll we'll see them start to turn it on a bit more. The whole day felt like a bit of a throwback, really. You've got Uruguay with their very rigid 80s style four four two. Then you've got Portugal reprising the class of twenty sixteen, and then basically a game straight out of South Africa 2010 to end the, the day with Spain passing the opposition to death and Vuvuzela's providing the soundtrack. Right. It's been a, been a strange day in that way, really. Mm. But we ought to give a mention to Ronaldo, um, another, another record. Top scorer in men's European international football with 85, one ahead of Pushkas. Still got a way to, uh, to catch Ali Dairi of Iran. He's the leading men's European international right. football scorer. With 85 goals. 85, one ahead of Puskas, Ali Deer, 109, the world leader.
0: Right, lots of people tweeting about this. Duncan Alexander, Ronaldo now has as many World Cup goals as Norway. Justin Bryant with an interesting take. He posits this scenario. Grandad, what was Ronaldo like? Oh, I spent his entire career irrelevantly comparing him to another player and snidely calling yet another player the real Ronaldo. It's It's true. <laughs> People find a lot of reasons not to love CR7. I, I personally have got a massive soft spot for him.
5: Me too, yeah. I mean, anybody who has zero self-awareness, I always think that there's something quite endearing about that in a strange way, and he definitely comes into that category.
0: His goatee, is that a direct reference to the Lionel Messi goat magazine cover? It <sighs> must be.
3: Come on. He's, he's not had facial hair since a very unconvincing bum fluff experiment. But it's a strange thing. I mean, it's not
0: like... Goat is a is a. Th- I mean, that's well, not how you I say. It. Celebrate
3: his 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 first goal against Spain with the slightly peculiar chin stroking, and now this goatee is suddenly. Well, maybe bit- that
0: was the first whiskers coming through, and it is itchy. But you have some inside information on this, time? Well,
3: apparently Ronaldo's explanation for his his new facial adornment is that it came from a conversation he had with Ricardo Carajma before the Spain game. I think they were sitting in a sauna, uh-huh. um, which I assume is something to do I'm with... I'm getting top
0: gun vibes big, on this. Big,
3: very strong top gun go- uh, vibes. And one of them said, oh, if you score against Spain, you should grow a little goatee or something like that. And mm. lo and behold, mm. he did. So he did. But I'm, I'm not convinced. I think there's more to this. Just... I'm waiting to see how he, how he appears for the third group game. If there's anything goatee about his appearance, a couple of little synthetic horns
0: perhaps. We'll know that something's afoot.
4: Just goes to show that even at the age of thirty four, Ricardo Carisma can still influence a major tournament.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see a bit more Ricardo Carisma. He's, He's great. Possibly in the in the clash with Iran. Okay. Portugal do a Portugal on Morocco and that sets up a really interesting final set of games in group B. Group A, meanwhile, that's all sorted already. Uruguay's 1-0 win courtesy of Luis Suarez over Saudi Arabia and Rostov means that they and Russia are through and Saudi Arabia and Egypt are out. And what Sacha in yesterday's show was suggesting that he didn't fancy Russia's chances much
5: against uh, Uruguay, but based on this performance, I think you probably might disagree, Matt. Well, yeah, and based on the fact that, that Sasha said that, I would I would tend <laughs> to think the opposite of what he said given the way his predictions have gone so far. But yeah, Uruguay, it's sort of been disappointing in both games. I mean this was a this was the second half in particular was really bad. Maybe the worst we've seen in the tournament so far. But it's the first time they won their opening two games at the World Cup mm. since fifty four. So but maybe they're not doing as badly as I think. I can't I, can't, I find them quite a difficult team to, to judge at the moment. But
0: their their opposition in these opening two games what a, a Salalist Egypt are now Saudi Arabia it's probably the easiest opening fixtures they've had.
5: Yeah, that's true, and and it's all quite stodgy, and there doesn't seem to be the the link up between Cavani and Suarez that I'm sure Tabares is looking for. But but again, as Tom said earlier, you don't want to be peaking in in game two of the tournament. So if you if you're not playing well and you and you're winning anyway,
4: hmm. yeah, I mean Uruguay famously like it when the going is tough. So I think there's probably the feeling that a game against a tougher opponent. I don't know whether Russia would count as. That level of opponent, but certainly the knockout stages, I think that would be more likely to bring the best out of them. This was, yeah, a fairly rancid game, I think, and I don't think there was much there to encourage Uruguay, but I don't think it would necessarily be a good barometer for the kind of game they'll play against uh, in the knockout stage. Before we move on from Wednesday's action, there were a lot of question
0: marks over Portugal's bat line, and, and a lot of people suggesting that was their weak spot. In the game against a Morocco team who dominated possession but couldn't score, do we actually owe them a a little bit of praise? To a degree,
3: yes. Um, I think they were helped by the fact that Morocco just don't have the the sharp cutting edge that a team of their level need to make any sort of impression uh, uh, at a tournament like this. Uh, As Jack was saying, they've got lots of talent in the attacking midfield roles. But they had Butay up front today, and he, he didn't really pose any sort of threat. So it wasn't like Pepe and, and Joseph Font had their had their hands full the whole game. But yeah, you know, I suppose you have to give them credit for marshalling a defence that that didn't concede any goals. And on on the few occasions when Morocco did get in behind, then you know Rui Patricio stood up with a couple of saves. But you'd, you'd still worry for Portugal with that slightly creaky back line coming up against forwards with a bit more now, particularly when people like you know. Guerreiro at left back are having absolute shockers.
5: Yeah, alright. Some classic Pepe action at the end of the game as oh, yeah. well, which was uh, you don't want to see that kind of thing, but you really do, don't you? I mean, it's sort of quite funny. Benatia just, just with a sarcastic pat on the back and him throwing himself to the ground and Martin Keown lamenting the time when men used to be men and yeah, yeah. great stuff.
0: Classic part. World Cup scenes. Yeah. We all look back on the Rivaldo incident <laughs> from 2002 with With affection. And no doubt in years to come, this will be revisited similarly. That's Wednesday anyway, after this, Thursday.
6: Listeners, even your good friends here at the Totally Football Show need to take a break from the football every now and then. And that's why we read The Economist. And you can too, for free, by texting the word football to 78070. The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance. Since 1843, the magazine's been covering a range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, arts and even sport. For example, there's an article in a recent issue which crunches the numbers to investigate why goalkeepers are undervalued. I've read it, and that's why I can tell you that in the past four transfer windows, strikers bought by some of the biggest clubs in the world have cost €17.1 million on average, which works out at around €8.5 million a point, whereas goalkeepers have cost €6.5 million per head at a slightly higher rate of €9.4 million a point. The conclusion? Keepers cost less than forwards not because they're underappreciated, but because they are less valuable. And it's nuggets like that that helps economist readers prepare for what's going on in the world around them a world in which facts count more than ever. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your free print copy now. Just text FOOTBALL to 78070.
0: Coming up in your exciting World Cup 2018, ooh, one o'clock, Group C gets back underway as Denmark take on Australia. Out east in Samara, staying with that group. Four o'clock, it's France against Peru. That's an exciting game. We'll be hearing a little bit about the Peruvian perspective on it. Very shortly, the game being played in Ekaterinburg, which is even Easter. And then at seven o'clock, this could be very, very, very dramatic indeed. Group D, Argentina, held to that one more draw by Iceland, take on Croatia in Nizhny Novgorod, which is a short hop northeast of Moscow. So then, France against Peru... The besashed Peruvians have won hearts, I think, for their the passion they brought to the streets of Russian cities and on the pitch as well in their uh, unfortunate 1 0 defeat against Denmark. How are they going to fare against Les Well, we dialed up the co host of Sports Illustrated TV's Planet Football, Luis Miguel Echegaray, to get his take. Luis, how are you?
7: I'm good, Jimbo. Thanks for having me on your awesome show. (laughs)
0: Well, No, we're we're delighted that you could join us. Uh, We're so excited to see Peru in action again on Thursday in this huge game against France. How how do you think Gareca is going to go for this? Is he going to go all out for the win, which you you desperately need? Or or is it going to be a cautious affair?
7: I think you might get a little bit of both Jimbo Um, if we know anything about Gareca is that he's a a tactical smart patient man who times his pressing and his uh, possession game and defending all within one match I don't think you're just going to see one single type of tactic we may hold at the beginning feel them out a little bit, maybe tire them. And then as the game progresses, then Gareca might have to start thinking about the fact that we need to, uh, you know, cause some havoc. But I don't think, that's the beautiful thing about Ricardo Gareca. He's not a type of manager where you just get a plan A. He has a plan A to plan F, I guess. So, you know, I think that's what you're going to get.
0: You saw France's game against Australia, I imagine, Luis. Yes. Do you think they can be beaten by Peru?
7: Well, Jimbo, I'll tell you something. Before the tournament even started... I tweeted and reported and I guess somebody asked me somewhere else and I actually said that, listen, I'm not going to be, you know, obviously naive and say that France is not a favorite in this group with the talent that they have. But Australia, in terms of what they offered against a team like Peru and what we do, Australia actually worried me more than France. And that kind of proved my point in that first game with France and Australia, where, yes, we know the individual talent that France has, but to me, Didier Deschamps is like a man that just found a pot of gold and he just threw it in the ocean. I really don't think that he has been able to create a cohesive unit and he's relying more on the flair and individual talent of like Antoine Griezmann or Paul Pogba, Mbappé, I think that this game actually suits us better because it will be more open and we'll be able to create better avenues and better spaces. So I'm not saying we're going to win. I'm cautiously optimistic. But I have such a belief in Ricardo Gareca, one of the most underrated managers in the world, that there is definitely a realistic possibility that we can cause some damage. Wow.
0: Okay. How big a deal is being in the World Cup for Peru?
7: Oh, Jimbo, it's if I could write you a poem right now uh, or sing you a song or show you something. I mean, it's, it's honestly, you can't even put it into words. 36 long years. Many of us have never even seen Peru at the World Cup. We have memories and tales from our parents and grandparents of the good days of the 70s and 80s. Um, and that's also mixed with the political climate that happened in the, during that period just being kind of the laughing stock of South America for many years there was so much talent but no discipline there was a lot of will but no execution we it just means everything everything and you can see it you can see it in videos of fans over there in Peru or in Russia you can just see the passion and what it feels to everybody it really it's very hard to describe because it really is more than just the World Cup. It's just an opportunity for Peruvians to celebrate the fact that we are good enough to be here.
0: How many Peruvian fans are there in Russia, do you think?
7: I was reading a few things and listening to some reports. The estimates at that around that time was approximately between 50 and 60,000. And I think that number is probably higher, given the fact that there's a lot of Peruvian Americans, you know, Peruvians coming from the U.S. or Peruvians from around the world. So the number is pretty high up.
0: Many thanks to Luis Miguel Ichikarai, who you can see in SITV's Planet Football. So Peru aiming high for this one, as indeed uh, Cueva, of course, was in the uh, game against Denmark. That was such a shame, wasn't it? Because he had such a great game.
4: Yes, he had a very good game aside from that Mm. unfortunate miss and he was understandably crestfallen. I'm sure he's had a few sleepless nights since. The question for Peru is... Where the goals are going to come from, I don't think Jefferson Farfan had a particularly effective game up front mm-hmm. in the game against Denmark, and I think there's a strong likelihood that Paulo Guerrero, who is actually Farfan's childhood friend, they go back a long way, will replace him in the starting lineup. I right. think Guerreca said it's one or the other. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Guerrero is Peru's top scorer ever, obviously coming back from his ban. Which but he, he looked good in the, in the half hour that he came on against Denmark. He did. He's a focal point. I think that's what the team needs. They've got a lot of pace and a lot of trickery around him. And sometimes you need someone who will just stand in the penalty area, be a bit of a lump. He's very good in the air as well, which is something the rest of the team don't have. The slight couple of injury concerns for them. Renato Tapia, the very influential central midfielder, got a bang on the head against Denmark. And both he and Andre Carrillo, who is also excellent, have trained separately the last couple of days. Either one of those missing out would be a huge blow. OK. Interesting question as well for
0: Greca. Does he go for it? They almost certainly need the win. The only way four points would be enough is if Denmark and Australia draw in a series of other events. They, they kind of have to go for it here. Do they have the talent to really scare the, the, the French, a, a France team indeed that didn't impress in their opener with Australia?
3: Yeah, Didier Deschamps had to go back to the drawing board. I've spoken about this in some of the preview shows, but his hope was that this fluid front three of, of Griezmann and Mbappe and Dembele would click. It hasn't. They were very disappointing against Australia. Didn't really start playing any football until Olivier Giroud came on um, and there's no surprise that he looks like he's going to start against Peru it also looks like Blaise Matuidi is going to come back into the team who has been one of Deschamps most trusted lieutenants so he'll, he'll give them a bit more industry one of the things that was really lacking against Australia was any pressing from the attacking players and that seems to have been quite a big issue after the game reports of Deschamps questioning his attacking players as to why they weren't working harder to close down Australia's defenders and being told in response, well, we didn't do that enough in training we weren't sure what we were supposed to be doing. So a few potential issues there. I think one area that will concern France is the knowledge that the last team that beat them was Colombia uh, back at at the Stade de France in March a team quite similar to Peru in many ways with a a big figurehead centre forward Falcao for Colombia Guerrero as it looks like it's going to be for Peru and then a lot of tricky technical players around him Carrillo who we didn't see a huge amount of at Watford last season very impressive in in Peru's opening game against Denmark. Uh, Flores on the other flank and Cueva, who we've talked about as well. So there is there is a bit of nervousness I think in the French camp and it looks like Deschamps is going to revert to type. He's going to go back to the 4-2-3-1 system that he used during the Euro with Griezmann playing just off Giroud, Matuidi adding a bit more ballast in midfield and and hoping that that, you know, that that sorts out their problems.
0: All right. You you make a good case for Peru here, but what do you think's going to happen, Tom?
3: It's really hard to say with France because I didn't see anything in that game against Australia that gave me any real optimism for them. Apart from the fact that when Giroud came on, the link-up play got a little bit better. We know that Griezmann prefers playing with him. Mbappe showed in fits and starts what he can do. I find it really hard to call this game. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a draw, if France dropped points. I mean, they were fortunate to beat Australia. It took a contentious penalty and one one of the most fortuitous goals that we've seen at the World Cup so far... You know, Pogba having the ball sort of kicked off his toe by an Australia defender and, and looping about an inch over the line. So um I can see France dropping points here, and if they do, it it might not be a disaster. But it's it's really hard to say where they are at the moment.
0: Okay. Well the other game in that group sees Australia, who certainly had the performance in their opener, take on a, a Denmark team
5: who maybe didn't have the performance, but certainly had the points. A low-scoring one in prospect, would you say, Matt? Uh, it certainly feels that way. Yeah, I, it's it, a theme of this World Cup seems to be the importance of of having a, a striker, an out-and-out striker, something which we haven't seen in recent tournaments. You think if France are going to go for Giroud, that they're thinking that way? But you look at the goal scorers today: Ronaldo, Costa, and Suarez—three hmm. three big name, um, big name front men, and and that's what. Denmark in particular are lacking, but but Australia too, from what we saw against France, other than maybe an Aaron Moy free kick, uh, finding somebody or a penalty, a moment of madness from Antiti, it's very difficult to see how Australia can score in, in open play against a Denmark team that's got such a good defence right now. Kasper Schmeichel, what, more than 500 minutes since he's last conceded a goal, five yeah. matches? Without uh, without letting one in, so
0: last team to score against him, uh, Republic of Ireland.
5: Mm, yeah, in the playoff, which mm. uh, which they won handsomely anyway. So it, difficult to make a case for Australia here, and difficult to make a case for for anything other than maybe the kind of game that we've seen today—a sort of fairly tepid, low-scoring affair.
0: The Danes can actually qualify from this match. Uh, Socceroos absolutely must win. A little bit of team news: William Christ has been sent home with two broken ribs. Ouch. That's OK, because their
4: key player has never been Chris. OK.
0: Never <laughs> been Chris. Very nice. I'd love more, but you did that on Twitter the other day.
3: Hey, so, uh,
4: a good joke is a good joke forever. <laughs>
0: but another player who did go home has come back again.
4: Yes, Jonas Knudsen, who... I believe I'm right in saying didn't play in the first game but his uh, had a baby daughter born slightly prematurely and the other members of the squad very kindly all chipped together to get him a private jet back so he could be with her and I think he's now returned to the squad so I'm sure that has uh, gone down very well
0: Excellent. Australia absolutely must win this game to stay in with a chance of making the last 16. The Danes can already qualify with a victory here Sun, sea, sand and football. Watching
6: the World Cup on holiday sounds like paradise. Until you try watching a game online and realise seconds before kickoff that it's blocked. Well, instead of bemoaning your decision to book a trip during a tournament that comes around once every four years, you need to get yourself a virtual private network from bestvpn.com. And you'll be able to access the internet freely wherever you are this summer, all for less than the price of a pint. Because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can get 70% off a VPN by visiting bestvpn.com slash podcast. Bestvpn.com will set you up with a VPN in minutes so you can watch the football from your deck chair or by the pool. And when it comes to security, bestvpn.com will also protect your internet activity from prying eyes on open Wi-Fi networks. No matter where you are in the world, you can access your online home comforts with a VPN. So unlock the internet today with bestvpn.com. Find out more and get 70% off by heading to
0: bestvpn.com slash podcast. Thursday also sees Group D returning with a very intriguing Argentina-Croatia match. Croatia will no doubt be more relaxed than the Argentines coming into this after the Argentines could only manage a 1-1 draw in their opener with Iceland. Messi missed a penalty, or had one saved to be fair, And, as usual, their attack just stuttered, which it's been doing all the way through the qualifying. Jack, they've got an amazing squad, a pool of goal-scoring talent. They've also got the amazing Leo Messi. And just the fact of having him on the field, if he doesn't score, you'd think that because the opposition, like Iceland, stick three men on him, the likes of Aguero or whoever else, Higuain or whoever else is up there, is going to be piling the goals on. Why does it not happen like that for Argentina?
4: I think... You have to look at the tactics and you have to look at the disruptions that there have been over the last few years. There have been three different managers in qualifying. That disrupts things. Each of them has their own ideas. Even since Jorge Sampaoli took control, he's tried a number of different systems. We're going to see a different system in this game against Croatia to the one we saw in the first game. All of that means that it's hard for the players to build up relationships between themselves. A lot of players get used for Argentina that the number of options that you've alluded to there means that one gets tried for two matches, another one comes in for three matches, whereas compare them to the team they drew with in the first game, Iceland, who have picked largely the same group of players for three, four years now. They know each other's games inside out. Argentina have nowhere near that level of understanding between the players. And what it means is that in difficult situations when they need those like automatic passing options, they're not there. That means that they panic somewhat and they look for the easiest option, whose name is Lionel Messi. He's crowded out all the time. And I think it's just a becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't know what to do, so they look for Messi. Messi gets crowded out and they need another option. But the only other option they have is, again, look for Messi. It's a problem that's not going to go away quickly. And I think perhaps in Sampaoli they have a coach who given the time, would be able to find a reasonable solution to it. But time is something he hasn't had. Uh, This has been quite a rushed preparation because of the managerial changes. And yeah, it's just trying to organise a cogent team at short notice is just very difficult. Well, it looks like what he's going to try
0: and do to improve things in this clash with Croatia is, is bringing the Boca Juniors winger Christian Pavon who a lot of people including yourself Matt Davies are very excited about
5: yeah yeah at the risk of being um, repeating myself yeah I I really I really love this guy and I think Jack hit the nail on the head after the Iceland game where he he made the point about how everything goes through Messi and I thought it was really interesting when Pavon came on that he didn't seem to be cowed by that at all he was more than happy to take responsibility on himself try and beat his man get a cross in he should have had a penalty and it was just that kind of sort of impetuousness of youth if you like that, that means that he's he just doesn't appear to have that same weight on his shoulders of oh, where's Messi, where's Messi, and I think even Messi said after he made his debut, this guy's great, and I enjoy playing with him. But it would be a huge call uh, for Sam Pauli to to put Pavon in at the expense of Di Maria would be the natural position to put him in. And obviously, I mean, Di Maria... Would
0: was... that be a huge call? Is Di Maria been... A-
5: Only in terms of the fact that it's Di Maria. Yeah. Um, and-, and Pavon is a-, a 22-year-old kid who's who's just had his first breakthrough season. But Di Maria was particularly ineffective against Iceland, I thought. So, you know, if Pavon gets the chance from the start, I, I would I would back him to um, to justify his selection.
0: This business of time with Sampaoli, a-, a run in the cup, might we start to see Argentina making something of these incredible ingredients they have?
4: Um, yeah, potentially. I mean, a lot A lot can gel in a short period of time. We were talking about Peru earlier, and actually a lot of Peru's game plan really came together during a couple of Copa America campaigns, during which they gelled probably more than expected, and they actually had long periods together. Sao Paulo is up against it, obviously, because not only... Is he looking to find a system that works? But obviously there's a massive amount of pressure on him and the Argentine media is not particularly forgiving and you've got obviously Diego Maradona coming out and wading in with his oar and saying that oh, it, it was shameful against Iceland and uh, a failure to beat Croatia would mean Pauli would not be welcome home, things like this. So I think in countries like Argentina and Brazil, there's an added level of uh, cattiness, I would say, that doesn't help the managerial situation that maybe isn't present in, you know, a Peru or a Colombia. Mm. Well,
0: Croatia, meanwhile, who come into this game top of the group, albeit after just one game, have one or two issues of their own. You may have read about the the fan boycott, a lot of fans saying that they're not going to support the team at the World Cup, while the ruling clique in the Croatian FA remains out of jail. There's various banners have been cited on social media in Croatia saying, "May you all lose." This kind of thing, and this is this centres around the the ongoing scandal regarding the activities of uh, Stravgo Mamic, who was the the head of Croatian football, previously Dinamo Zagreb, and then the Croatian FA, and the the way that money disappeared in the transfers of uh, the likes of Luka Modric and Dejan Lovren, both of whom are now facing trial for perjury after taking the stand in Mamic's defence, and as a result shall we say, that the fans have fallen out of love with these two uh, star players. Uh, To find out a little bit more on the whole situation and, indeed, how it's possibly affecting the team as they head into this huge match with Argentina, to find out a little bit more about this very unfortunate situation and how it might impact on the team in Thursday night's game, we dialed up uh, the Telesport commentator, Yuri Virdoljak. You're right. thanks for joining us. First of all, what is the position that Luka Modric is in now?
1: Well, it's really a bizarre one because on one hand, you have best player in the current setup. Not only in the current setup, he's probably the, one of the best players in Croatian football history. But on the other hand, you have a player that um, is facing even prison time because of his giving a false testimony in the Mamic trial case he is now charged with perjury and he could be facing uh, from six months up to five years in prison. That's actually the thing that divides the Croatian society. Um, Should we let a a person, not only who's facing prison time, but uh, even worse, who try to lie only to cover the, the people who are responsible for the situation for this toxic atmosphere in the Croatian football? Or should we just give him a pass and let people see him only as a player who shouldn't be involved in these kind of disputes? It's hard to say. Personally, uh, I I fully understand people who do not want him to be the national team captain because he could use his influence to perhaps clear things up uh, to to raise this really bad shadow over Croatian football. But instead, he chose to stand with the people who are responsible for the whole situation.
0: He's regarded as such a key player for Croatia. Do you see this affecting his performance?
1: Uh, It'll obviously cross his mind on a daily basis because uh, even though the trial date has not yet been set for Luka Modric, it's really a, not only a heavy offense, but on the other hand, it's something that undermines his status in Croatian football history. He is the one of the best players ever, but on the other hand, uh, he'll definitely be remembered as the one that try to cover the big boss, the big bad boss and the top villain of the Croatian football in his farcical testimony in front of the court. In the meantime,
0: you're in big game against Argentina. How optimistic are you about the team's chances?
1: People actually expect uh, that Croatia can pull out a victory. but Also, people expect formation to be slightly changed due to the fact that you cannot let the Argentine midfield run you over and Nigeria didn't actually exploit the middle of the pitch where whereas they could.
0: Juraj Verdoliak of Telesport there. Huh, what a story that is, Tom. Indeed, yes. Very could, sad, isn't it?
5: Because you think of Croatia traditionally as being one of the, the teams with the closest bond to their supporters. So it's, I mean, I'm going back. 20 years maybe with that, but, but that sort of magic 98 World Cup finished third, it was all about the bond between the players and the, and the supporters, wasn't it? And, and couldn't be further from the truth now.
0: Right, not right now. Uh, Luka Modric, meantime, a lot of people were saying how Zlatko Dalic, the new manager, shifted him forward to a, a more of a number 10 role. That was supposedly the plan, but I, I, there wasn't much of that in the Nigeria game, which was not a great performance.
3: No, he played a bit deeper, um, played alongside Ivan Rakitic. We all know that Croatia's talent pool is deepest in midfield. We saw that, I think, in that game against Nigeria, where Croatia always looked in control, just didn't really make many chances. They had two shots on target, one of which was a penalty, and the opening goal was an own goal. Uh, Ivan Perisic, I thought, had quite a good game and put in a couple of dangerous crosses in the second half. Neither of which were converted. So, while there's 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 plenty of talent in that Croatian midfield, they're they're another team who look like they're lacking someone who can um, who can find you know who can make the difference in in tight matches
0: up front. I certainly going to be lacking Nikola Kalinic after they sent him home for refusing to come on in the Nigeria game, supposedly because he had a bad back. Yeah, Rakitic, of course, is a teammate of uh, Messi's at Barcelona, so he'll have he'll have special insider information on how to stop him.
3: In case any of his teammates aren't familiar with him.
0: Right, right. Uh, Are Croatia going to be better this time around, do you think, Matt?
5: Yeah, I think the, the pressure's off them to an extent, having got that first result and knowing that Argentina didn't, so I would, I would actually think that Croatia might, might nick a win here. Do you think so? Mm.
4: Wouldn't surprise me if they packed the midfield a bit more. I saw them against Brazil in the pre-tournament friendly and they played Milan Badel of, of Fiorentina in a midfield three alongside Modric and Rakitic. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad move given that Argentina are probably g- again going to be quite crowded through the middle that kind of block would probably help them keep it quite tight as they did against Brazil. Mm.
0: Brazil struggled to get past them didn't it? they? They did a for a long time. Special goal from Neymar to, to resolve that one. Alright Tom what's your call on this? Yeah, I mean, as
3: Jack was saying, in Argentina, they, you know, we saw that they had problems against Iceland, and you know, there is a real feeling of an airplane being constructed and trying to be flown at the same time. Croatia clearly are a more settled team, um, and, and and have have plenty of ability. You know, that there is a bit of a question mark, I think, about their efficiency in front of goal. But this is this feels like a good time to be playing Argentina.
4: Mm.
0: Some upheaval, of course, uh, for Croatia as well. Zlatko Dalic only recently taking over since uh, qualification was earned indeed for the World Cup in Russia. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in that game and all of Thursday's fixtures. Let's find out now the odds on those games. Producer Ben speaking to Paddy Power.
6: Thanks, Jimbo. I'm back with Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, Denmark versus Australia kicks things off. Uh, what are the markets looking on that
2: one? Yeah, it's intriguing, this one. Um, Denmark obviously in a good position after their first round of victory. They're 8-11 to win the match. Australia is so unlucky to lose to France, a very 21st century defeat. They're 7-2 to to get three points here. And the draw, which seems to be the value for a lot of these second round fixtures, is 12-5 to in this match.
6: Uh, France squeaked past Australia in their opening game. They were really, really not very good at all. Uh, Peru unlucky, uh, probably not to get something from their game with Denmark. What's going to happen in this one?
2: Yeah, I wonder. We're starting to see a pattern of the uh, the bigger teams faltered at the first game. A few plucky smaller teams were unlucky. Uh, now it's time for judgments. Peru are quite a large six to one to get the result here. France are 1-2 to two and really do need to get an impressive performance with that. It's 16-5 to five for the draw. Uh, and odds on, I would say, that Paul Pogba is under more pressure after this match.
6: And the highlight for this uh, this day's games has got to be Argentina versus Croatia. Argentina were hopeless against Iceland. Croatia looked very, very tasty indeed. Is Leo Messi
2: going to have a stinker? Yeah, Argentina needs to replace the number 10, don't they? He's overrated. <laughs> Argentina are evens to win this match. Uh, Messi and Argentina generally are 19 to one to miss a penalty again. Or uh, Lionel bounced back? He's 40 to one to grab a hat trick. Croatia 11 to four to win this match, and it's 23 to 10 the draw. But Croatia, after years of being to the dark horses, and this year being written off as past it, have finally started to show some material. I quite like them.
0: You can find out those odds and more at PaddyPower.com. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org, and when the fun stops, stop. Do tweet us listeners at the Totally Show with your questions and comments. On Facebook, you'll find videos, quizzes, competitions, and more. And of course, we'll have a new Totally Football Show at the World Cup for you after they wrap things up between Argentina and Croatia. Matt, any final thoughts before
5: we press stop? I think tomorrow is going to be better than today.
0: Thursday better than Wednesday? Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope so. Although, I mean, if if
3: things gently build up, yeah. crescendo-like as they did today, and we then argentina th- Croatia is a, a real cracker, I'd, I'd take that.
0: Yeah. If, if today turns out to be the low point of this World Cup, it'll be a pretty good World Cup.
4: I would say so, yeah.
0: Yeah, nice one. If someone else could attempt a
3: somersault throw-in at <laughs> an inappropriate moment as well, that would that would also go down well.
4: It wasn't Iran's first weird throw-in either, because in the first game, just let me get the... Vahed... Amiri, who I believe is kind of left-sided player, twice lined up for a long throw with a, an insanely long run-up and then did a tiny little mini-one to a team where had come close. So they're obviously home-brewing some pretty spectacular throwing routines. Messing with
0: the opposition's minds.
4: Yeah. Interesting. Alright,
0: right, nice one. Well guys, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Listener, thank you for your participation. We'll catch up with you in 24. Have a great time till then. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a
6: Muddy Knees media production. Subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free. And seeing as you're still here, here's an extract from the new Gaza in Italy audiobook. It's written by Daniel Story, read by James Richardson, and published by HarperCollins. Have a listen, and if you like what you hear, you can download it from iTunes or Audible for just £4.99. Remember, it's exclusively an audiobook, and it's called Gaza in Italy.
0: Gascoigne's ability to succeed in the role of clown prince made him popular not just with Lazio supporters, but across Serie A. Atalanta fans created a banner for when they played Lazio with a huge bottle of beer and the welcome, this one is for you, Gaza, and that was a fairly consistent message. Even Roma supporters, their weight jibes aside, would concede that Gascoigne was a wonderful character to have at a club. If Lazio's aim when buying Gascoigne was to buy a player who would make their supporters love the club a little bit more than they had before, then it was a roaring success. At every home game at the Stadio Olimpico since he departed, there has been a banner on the Curva Nord bearing Gascoigne's image. If Gascoigne's popularity with Lazio's supporters was never in doubt, his relationship with some of his teammates was far less certain. Italian footballers hardly have a reputation for glumness, but the stereotype is that they pride themselves on professionalism and personal fitness. As Sir Alex Ferguson is quoted as saying in Gabriele Marcotti's The Italian Job, Italian players have, or at least had, a greater respect than the English for their profession. They enter a system that has a certain discipline, and it has been that way in Italy for 30 to 40 years. Clubs elsewhere copied the Italians. If there were times when Gascoigne was a professional by technicality rather than behaviour, was there not a chance that his antics might antagonise his teammates? Does a dressing room really need a clown, when the business of winning is so serious. Yet here again, the strength and warmth of Gascoigne's humanity won out. With the exception of Germans Thomas Dole and Karl-Heinz Riedler, who reportedly complained to the club that Gascoigne was being afforded special treatment, there is almost no insinuation that Gascoigne was anything other than a highly popular teammate. Perhaps this is because the other players didn't actually tend to socialise much with Gascoigne, or because he was a perfect lightning rod for media intrusion, in a country where cameras and microphones continually evade the personal space of famous footballers. But most likely, it is because Gascoigne was and is a man it is impossible to dislike, a vulnerable soul, but a kind and generous one too. Still, there must have been times when Gascoigne's joker persona tested the patience of his teammates. One well-known tale concerns Roberto Di Matteo, who reached into his pocket after Gascoigne had asked to borrow some change and found his hand making contact with a live snake. Gascoigne had found it in the garden of his villa after the morning training session and realised that it could be the perfect prop for an afternoon practical joke. When appointed Chelsea manager in 2012, Di Matteo recalled the incident and his disbelief still lingered. I think anybody would react. I didn't think he was that crazy to put a live snake into my pocket. I didn't go near it because I'm so afraid of snakes. He did a lot of things, a lot of stuff, my God, some crazy stuff. There was also an occasion when Gascoigne had not turned up for training. As the team bus pulled into the training ground, he was seen lying by the side of the road with a motorbike on top of him, covered in blood. It was not until several teammates had run to his side that Gascoigne burst out laughing, stood up, and pointed to a large amount of tomato ketchup on his clothes. The Italian players must have wondered who on earth had arrived at their club. He was a man with the heart and eyes of a child, said Pierluigi Casaragi, probably intending that as both compliment and insult. We were on the team bus once, and he sat down behind Zoff, As soon as the bus went into a dark tunnel, he stripped off all of his clothes and just sat there, waiting for Zoff to turn around and see him naked. Yet most obvious in the anecdotes of his Lazio teammates is the unanimous surprise not at Gascoigne's japery, but his extreme generosity. It became a tradition for him to present the squad's younger members with presents. Alessandro Nesta recalls being given five pairs of shoes and a fishing kit, while Gascoigne gave Marco Devao an expensive camera. Gascoigne was not a materialistic person, but he understood that others took pride in their possessions. His natural reaction, therefore, was to give things away to make others happy. No one could ever dislike Paul. He was so generous, said Signore, still a friend of Gascoigne today. If you ever said, Gaza, what a beautiful watch, where did you buy it? He would take it off and give it to you. To hear the full story of Gaza in Italy, download the exclusive audiobook on Audible or iTunes.